right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Hey folks, Aaron here. Just a heads up, this episode contains stories of violence and genocide that might be hard for some to hear. Take care while listening. Turkey, cranberries, stuffing, and pumpkin pie. It's the traditional Thanksgiving dinner for many Americans. It's a time to gather and give thanks for all that we have. Ever since grade school, we've been taught that when the pilgrims arrived in America, the local Wampanoag tribe helped them survive in the New World. To show their gratitude, the pilgrims invited their new friends to a feast in late November of 1621. Historians still debate the origin of Thanksgiving, with some pointing to the Pequot War of 1637 as the first event. See, the colonists feared that the native Pequot people would form an alliance with the nearby Narragansetts and drive them into the sea. According to the governor of Plymouth, a guy named William Bradford, armed soldiers surrounded the Pequot village and set it on fire, calling the deaths a sweet sacrifice. Governor Winthrop of the Massachusetts Bay Colony declared a day to celebrate. Fast forward to the 1620s, the English separatists known as the Saints ended up in Plymouth sometime in December. Sick and low on supplies, their survival seemed bleak. They encountered the Wampanoag tribe, who offered assistance in a show of compassion and peace. The two nations signed a treaty with both sides promising to protect each other from enemies. The jurisdiction was sorted out later. After losing nearly half their settlers in the first winter to sickness, the English teetered on extinction. The Wampanoag also suffered, though. Europeans brought diseases, after all, killing 90% of the native population. Still, Chief Massasoit represented 70 Wampanoag communities at the feast. Native Americans and pilgrims celebrated with venison, wild fowl, cod, and recently harvested vegetables. But the celebrations wouldn't last. For the Native Americans across the land, oppression and persecution were soon to come. I'm Aaron Mankey, and welcome to the Wild West. During America's early years, settlers believed that nothing was free and that hard work was the only way to achieve success. 
But free land was a deeply rooted part of American folklore and the original American dream of European settlers. It didn't help that the U.S. government encouraged them to spread west, conquer the land, and make it prosperous. The goal was to increase and multiply so they could hold the land, regardless of who might already be living there. Congress didn't always agree, at least about the free part. Then the Civil War ushered in even more significant changes. In 1861, Lincoln told the nation that the American government's purpose was to elevate the condition of men and to give everyone an unfettered start and a fair chance in the race of life. The Homestead Act followed in 1862, granting free land to those wanting to farm. Homesteaders who wanted land had to file a claim and then pay an $18 fee. $10 of that fee went to claiming the land, another two went to the land agent for a commission, and the remaining $6 payment went toward the patent on the land. Filers could buy land for $1.25 per acre. Homesteaders also needed to fulfill additional requirements, though, including five years of continuous residence on that land, building a home there, farming it, and making improvements. Applicants could not ever have borne arms against the United States. And finally, two neighbors or friends had to certify the applicant had fulfilled the requirements. In the era of the Civil War, Union soldiers were granted the privilege of shortening that mandated five-year residency period by the duration of their service in the military. Before, land ownership was unattainable for a lot of struggling farmers. But with the Homestead Act, they had a better shot at prosperity. Additionally, women could now make land claims, marking a significant milestone. This change also provided a new path for immigrants, who were not limited to working in coastal industries or for large farm owners. They could form their own communities, as seen in the establishment of New Ulm, Minnesota. German and Bohemian immigrants founded the town and displayed little desire to integrate into American society, instead choosing to limit commerce within their community. The town primarily spoke the native languages and created a new home for themselves on the riverbank. In 1853, steamboats passed by New Ulm, bringing troops to lay out Fort Ridgely. For the next two decades, settlers, freight, supplies, and gold all arrived by boat. Native Americans and New Ulm settlers traded and mingled freely. Life along the riverbanks seemed idyllic, at least until white settlers came by the hundreds, taking over the homes and the hunting grounds of the Dakota tribes. The trouble started in 1855 while the Dakota, who occupied the land, were away hunting elsewhere. The settlers literally moved into the Dakota's bark houses and took over their land, and then refused to leave even when the original inhabitants returned and demanded their property back. Although there were treaties between the settlers and the Dakota, the newcomers ignored them. As you might imagine, the Dakota didn't care much for people stealing their homes and crops. But it didn't stop with just taking their property. The settlers also drove away the game that the Dakota needed for food. They also brought smallpox, which decimated the tribes. So the Dakota sent their chief, Teo Yateduta, to speak on their behalf. The white settlers simply called him Chief Little Crow, a mistranslated version of his father's name, which had meant Charging Hawk. Although Little Crow tried to reason, the settlers turned a deaf ear. They refused to leave, to honor the treaty, and they declined to pay the Dakota for what they'd taken. Hungry and homeless, the Dakota resorted to begging. More white settlers followed, though, taking even more of their land. Eventually, the government offered the Dakota annuities, monthly payments, handing them out midsummer. But in 1862, the payments were late, 
supplies were low, and the Dakota were hungry. So hungry, in fact, that they had no choice but to eat unripe fruit and marsh grass. Settlers refused to offer aid, and unlike the white settlers, the Dakota were not allowed to buy supplies on credit. The settlers remained unempathetic, though. The Dakota lacked food necessary for their survival, and they weren't about to help them, which turned out to be the perfect recipe for confrontation. Andrew Myrick worked as a trader at the Lower Sioux Agency. Although he had a Dakota wife, he was unforgiving of the desperate Dakota's plight. Taking indigenous women as wives was a common practice for white men. They raised their children in European-American culture and cut their wives and children off from their indigenous heritage and roots. Now, Myrick had two stores in Yellow Medicine and Redwood, near the Upper and Lower Sioux Agencies. The Dakota at the Upper Agency asked for help from the store owners as they waited for their annuity payments and ran low on food. Myrick, among others, declined. The Dakota tribe was left without payment until their annuity arrived, and the federal representative showed very little concern for their survival. Despite attempts to negotiate credit extensions in exchange for direct payment to traders, the government denied the request, leaving the Dakota to face starvation. Amidst the Civil War chaos, the indigenous people's plight appears to have been disregarded by the American government. On July 2nd of 1862, Timothy J. Sheehan, the commander of the 5th Minnesota Volunteer Regiment, arrived with his men to find that the annuity payment was still missing. The Dakota people were already struggling with hunger and deprivation and were close to losing their patience. Throughout the summer, tensions escalated, fueled by an incident involving Little Crow and Andrew Myrick. Myrick had significantly profited from the Dakota throughout the treaties that deprived them of their resources and showed no compassion toward their struggles. So Little Crow confronted Myrick. If the annuity was on its way and his stores were full of supplies, Myrick should be able to extend both sympathy and credit so they could get back on their feet. Myrick exploded in anger, and soon a crowd formed around them. Myrick told Little Crow that if the Dakota were hungry, they could, and I quote, eat grass. The Dakota in the crowd began yelling at Myrick, but the confrontation quickly settled down. Myrick later wrote about their behavior to his brother, although, of course, he left out his own incendiary remarks from the letter. July came and went, and the payment had still not arrived, when a few hungry Dakota men returning from an unsuccessful hunting trip came across a farmhouse, they argued amongst themselves about stealing some eggs. And while the details are lacking, the rumor was spread that the men killed the family inside. They reportedly also stole horses from a nearby farm, eventually traveling to Little Crow's home. A crowd gathered as the men told their story. The men said that they weren't sorry. They'd been pushed too far for too long. They had everything taken from them, and the white settlers were starving them to death. They argued that the payment might never arrive, or the money would be worthless like everything else promised to them. The Dakota had been patient for far too long, and now it was time for war. The mood was heavy as Little Crow stood before the crowd, his face blackened and his head covered in mourning. He spoke of hard truths, warning the people of the danger ahead if they went to war. He warned them that the white men were like locusts, swarming in such numbers that they could not be defeated. They would come faster than the eye could see, their guns in hand, and they would not stop until they had killed all of them. But his people didn't listen. They were too angry, too desperate. Their desire for revenge blinded them. 
They saw only the injustice that had been done to them and the land that had been stolen and the women that had been taken. They couldn't see the danger that lay ahead. The next morning, Little Crow led a hundred Dakota warriors in a silent march to the trading center at the lower agency. No one spoke or made a sound. They walked with purpose, their eyes fixed on their goal. When they arrived at Andrew Myrick's house, one of them knocked on the door. A man answered and was promptly shot. Hearing the commotion outside, Myrick knew who had come for him, and he quickly fled out one of his windows. He ran for the woods, but he couldn't escape the fury of the Dakota. His body was later found riddled with holes from bullets, knives, and arrows. But most telling of all was what they discovered in his mouth. It had been stuffed with grass. The summer of 1862 saw a violent conflict between the Dakota people and the government, resulting in hundreds of deaths and thousands of displacements. The failure to honor treaties, forced removal from their land, and inhumane treatment had pushed them to the breaking point. Yet more European-American settlers continued to encroach on Dakota territory and demand payment for crops, which further impoverished the already struggling indigenous population. Minnie Buse, a seven-year-old girl living with her family about 50 miles north of New Ulm, would never forget August 18th of 1862. She and her brother hid in a cornfield when the Dakota attacked. Their father, still holding their three-month-old sister in his arms, was shot. Minnie's mother, just behind him, sat down abruptly in shock, holding Minnie's two-year-old sister. A bullet passed through both their bodies, killing them. All Minnie could hear were the gunshots and the birds singing overhead. She and her remaining siblings tried to run, but were immediately captured. The Dakota warriors robbed Myrick's stores for much-needed supplies. And meanwhile, Little Crow tried to spare certain people, many of them of mixed race. But word of the killing spread quickly, and the settlers who had previously turned their backs on the Dakota desperately tried to flee. Many of them were either captured or killed. In mid-August, Territorial Governor Alexander Ramsey appointed Henry H. Sibley to colonel within the state militia. But fighting against the Dakota would be a difficult task for Sibley. He had traded with them for almost a quarter of a century. He spoke their language, had been adopted into a band of Dakotas, had a Dakota child, and knew Little Crow personally. Little Crow, on the other hand, began a campaign to drive the settlers out of the region and reclaim Dakota homeland. They reached New Ulm on August 19th, where they found the town on high alert. Residents had hastily erected wooden barricades to defend themselves. The Dakota arrived in the afternoon, but Little Crow and his supporters wanted to focus on Fort Ridgely. Nearly 100 warriors disagreed and continued on to New Ulm, leaving the rest to watch and wait. The fighting began on the outlying farms, many of which were burned, but a heavy downpour put out some of the fires and drove away the warriors. On August 23rd, the Dakota returned to New Ulm. Little Crow led the attack with 650 warriors. The battle took 24 hours. It was the only time Native Americans surrounded and laid siege to a western town. New Ulm's residents worked hard to aid the wounded, to craft more ammunition, and to defend their town. The Dakota hesitated to attack, possibly fearing a trap, but army reinforcements arrived the next day, repelling the Dakota before they could take over the settlement entirely. The town, though, was burned and ruined, with 34 dead and 60 injured. Over 150 wagons carrying approximately 2,000 people, including women, children, and wounded, 
had been evacuated. In early September, General Sibley attempted to persuade Little Crow to surrender. Little Crow explained the reasons for the war and expressed his willingness to release prisoners, but he would not surrender. However, two other leaders, Chiefs Wabashaw and Taupi, who had opposed the war, were willing to discuss surrender as the war had caused division within the tribe. The conflict lasted for weeks, and with many men away fighting in the Civil War, there was a constant lack of supplies and fighters on the part of the U.S. Army. They continued to request help from Lincoln and Army superiors. And finally, on September 6th of 1862, Lincoln formed the Department of the Northwest and appointed General John Pope to command it. When troops were ready to ship out, they were sent to the front. Despite battles and victories being traded back and forth, it wasn't until September 26th that the main body of Dakota warriors surrendered. They had been decisively defeated in the Battle of Wood Lake, and their ammunition was running low. Along with them were more than 250 European-American and mixed-blood prisoners that the Dakota warriors had captured. Little Crow and a few other soldiers managed to escape. Meanwhile, prisoners like Little Minnie Buse were found and reunited with surviving family. At least, it seemed, life would finally settle down. Sadly, the backlash that followed against every single indigenous person in Minnesota was hideous. Regardless of whether or not they had participated in the attacks, no one escaped untouched. The U.S.-Dakota War of 1862 was a tragic episode in American history. It marked one of the first times that settlers in Minnesota faced the consequences of their actions against the Dakota people. But the war had devastating effects on both the settlers and their indigenous neighbors. The sensationalized accounts of the war that were published in newspapers across the country spread quickly, describing inaccurate atrocities such as scalping and children being nailed to trees and fences. Outrage was widespread, and people demanded action. Minnesota Governor Alexander Ramsey used the massacre as an excuse to pursue what state and federal officials had long wanted to do. He declared that the Native Americans of Minnesota must be exterminated, or at least driven far beyond the state's borders. A report from the Interior Department followed, suggesting any means necessary for the driving out of the Dakota, including, and I quote, extermination, massacre, banishment, torture, killing with smallpox, poison, and kindness. As a result, indigenous tribes in Minnesota were rounded up and put into concentration camps. Trials began at Camp Release in November of 1862. More than 300 Dakota men were sentenced to death. Legal representation for them was denied, and each trial rarely lasted more than just a few minutes. General Sibley wanted to execute them immediately, but he was concerned about presidential approval. He sought permission from Lincoln, who called a halt to the proceedings and requested information on those who had committed the most heinous crimes. Lincoln understood that many of the convicted had not even participated in the massacres, but were only guilty of resisting U.S. armed forces. Lincoln's decision to uphold only 39 convictions and commute the rest angered settlers in Minnesota and beyond. On December 26th of 1862, the government hanged 38 Dakota, making it the largest single execution in American history. And the men whose sentences he commuted were sent to Iowa's Camp McClellan, where they remained for four years. But Minnesota officials weren't satisfied with Lincoln's actions. 
They killed, banished, and imprisoned any indigenous peoples found within their borders. Hundreds of friendly indigenous people who had never raised a hand against them were marched from Camp Release to Fort Snelling. But along the way, furious white settlers attacked them. About 300 died from exposure, illness, and injury. Nearly 1,600 Native American women, children, and elderly were held on Pike Island during the winter of 1862-63. to Disease quickly spread throughout the camp, killing hundreds more. Treaties were nullified, reservation land was seized, and nearly 2,000 indigenous people were exiled in Dakota Territory and Nebraska. In 1863, General Sibley led the final push to expel any remaining Dakota from the state, and nearly 150 people were taken prisoner. A group of 200 Yankton men, women, and children, people who had never participated in the war but had simply camped in Dakota Territory, were slaughtered. Governor Ramsey even declared a bounty of $25 for every Dakota scalp. The news quickly spread through newspapers, with some even publishing ads promoting the increased state reward for dead Native Americans. Volunteers eagerly answered the call, driving out and killing any Dakota they found. It was an order that remained in effect for over five years. And it was this government-sponsored vigilante movement that ultimately led to the death of Little Crow himself, who was shot in the back for one of those cheap rewards. After that, his scalp was put on display in the state capitol, an act of barbarism that sounds more like something out of the 1360s than the 1860s. And even worse, it remained there until 1971. I hope you've noticed by now that there's more to the Wild West than cowboys on horseback, poker games in whiskey-soaked saloons, and deadly shootouts at high noon. But while stories of the conflict between indigenous peoples and those who are out to steal their land are a lot more painful to learn about, they are necessary pieces of the larger picture. I hope today's journey through that territory has helped you form a better understanding of the nuance and the deeper sense of pain that conflict caused. But we're not done just yet. Stick around through this brief sponsor break to hear one more tragic tale at the meeting place of two cultures. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today 
at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. The Ponca tribe's history is a familiar tale of an indigenous community's struggle for survival and acknowledgement amidst a rapidly changing world. The Ponca were a small tribe residing in northeastern Nebraska. They were forced to sell their ancestral lands to the United States government in the early 1800s in exchange for a 58,000-acre reserve between Ponca Creek and the Neobrara River. Despite this land grant, the Ponca lived in constant fear as attacks from Lakota bands regularly occurred and the United States government did very little to protect them. Their leader, Standing Bear, was born between 1829 and 1834 and grew up in an environment of unrelenting strife due to the United States government's unfair treaties. In addition to the raids, a smallpox epidemic swept in in the early 1800s and decimated the tribe forcing them into an agricultural lifestyle. The Ponca faced further challenges in the 1850s when white settlers decided they actually did want their land and overran the territory. They were pressured to sell their lands to the United States, again. The land they were forced to relocate to was unsuitable for farming and raising livestock, and in 1868, the U.S. government mistakenly included the Ponca's territory in a land agreement with the Lakota, which, again, led to Lakota raiding on their lands. As a result, the government decided to resolve the conflict by relocating the Ponca to Indian Territory in Oklahoma. Standing Bear was a grown man at the time of the forced march and was married to his wife, Suzette, with whom he had two children, Prairie Flower and Bear Shield. In 1876, the Poncas were informed that they would have to relocate, and Standing Bear was among the ten chiefs who embarked on a journey to find new land. They were not impressed with what they saw. Unfortunately, the United States government had already decided they didn't really care about the tribe's welfare, and on April 12, 1877, an order was issued to reforce their removal. The military escorted the Ponca on a grueling march to what they called the Hot Country. Many people died during the journey, including Standing Bear's daughter, Prairie Flower, and shortly after their arrival, his son, Bear Shield. According to Ponca historians, Standing Bear was unwilling to bury his son in Oklahoma. Along with a party of about 30 people, he traveled some 600 miles in the middle of winter back to Nebraska and their ancestral lands with his son's body intent on burying him there. The United States government did not allow indigenous peoples to leave Indian territory without their permission, and Standing Bear did not have a pass. As a result, the Secretary of the Interior, Carl Schultz, ordered General George Crook to arrest Chief Standing Bear and his companions and force them back to Indian Territory. They were imprisoned at Fort Omaha Barracks. Although General Crook had previously fought against Native Americans, he found himself sympathetic to the Ponca's situation. He went to the media, which helped spread the story of Standing Bear and his fellow prisoners nationwide. Two lawyers offered to represent them pro bono, 
and requested that a judge release the punkah immediately. Judge Elmer Dundee, who had relevant experience, agreed to hear the case presented by Standing Bear's attorneys, John L. Webster and Andrew L. Poppleton. After a tense hearing, the decision was in Standing Bear's favor and was a significant turning point for Native Americans in the United States. For the very first time, the court recognized that Indigenous people were actually people entitled to the same legal rights and protections as any other citizen. This ruling was a significant victory for Indigenous peoples who had been denied their rights and their humanity for so long. Standing Bear's case had a more extensive impact beyond the legal realm. It symbolized hope and inspiration for Native Americans who fought for equality and recognition. Standing Bear's bravery and determination in the face of injustice inspired generations of Indigenous people to stand up for their rights and fight for their dignity. Indigenous people across the world still face numerous challenges and obstacles. They continue to fight for recognition, land rights, and respect for their cultures and traditions. Standing Bear's story is a testament to the resilience and strength of Indigenous people. His legacy reminds us of the ongoing struggle for justice and equality for all peoples. Grim and Mild Presents The Wild West was executive produced by me, Aaron Mankey, and hosted by Aaron Mankey and Alexandra Steed. Writing for this season was provided by Michelle Muto, with research by Alexandra Steed, Sam Alberti, Cassandra de Alba, and Harry Marks. Fact-checking was performed by Jamie Vargas, with sensitivity reading by Stacey Partial Jensen. Production assistance was provided by Josh Thane, Jesse Funk, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about this and other shows from Grim and Mild and iHeartRadio, visit GrimAndMild.com. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com, that's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.